Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Now, if you've been around Wildwood uh, last week, you know that we started a new sermon series called The Coming of the King. And this is an exciting time of year because we are celebrating the coming of the King of Kings and the birth of Jesus. And Christians for millennia now have been looking at Matthew's chapters 1 and 2 and Luke chapter 1 and 2, the story, the Christmas story. We look at these verses every year about this time as we remember this incredible event of the coming of the King of Kings. And last week, Pastor Bruce began uh, our study by looking at the genealogy of Jesus found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And we saw that God works in providence um, and God works in grace through the genealogy of Christ. And so we saw that last week. Today we're going to be in part two of that series, looking at when Joseph gets brought into the story in Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. But before we do that, I want to just ask you this question. What is the normal way that Christmas unfolds in your house? What is the normal way that Christmas unfolds in your house? Now, let me give you some parameters maybe to help flesh out this picture in your minds. Um, When you think of a normal way for Christmas in your house, who is there? When you think of the normal way for Christmas, where are you? When you think of the normal way of Christmas, what is exchanged? in terms of gifts. When you think of the normal way of Christmas, what are the the, the things that surround it, the events that you attend? See, I believe that all of us, at some level, have a, a normal way in which Christmas unfolds. You know, in my family growing up, we were a Christmas Eve celebrating Christmas family. Were anybody Christmas Eve, Christmas celebrating families? Um, that was the, the normal way in which we celebrated Christmas in my house growing up. And what that meant was we would be able to open presents after we left the Christmas Eve service. So that meant that I had two jobs every Christmas Eve, and that was to get us to the earliest Christmas Eve service offered. And second of all, it was to have us sit at the front of the room, because in the church that I grew up attending, you would have communion at the end of the Christmas Eve service, and after you were served communion, you could go home. And so I would always want to sit at the front because we could get communion and get out of there faster and speed up the evening. Woe was me the year that the pastor made some cute comment in his mind that the last will be first and the first will be last, and he called him from the back to the front. Totally spoiled my Christmas that year. Um, But that was the way that Christmas was for me growing up. It was a Christmas Eve celebration. But now, I'm a a pastor, and for the last 20-plus years, I've had to change the way in which Christmas unfolded in my house. We haven't been able to do it that way. It'd be a little weird for the pastor to run out before the service was over. Um, So we've had to change our way. You know, one of the things that has happened, this will be my 44th Christmas that I've celebrated. 43 years old. It's the 44th Christmas I've been on the planet. And all 44 of those Christmases, I've been in Bartlesville on Christmas Day, or the last 43 Christmases I've been in Bartlesville, Oklahoma on Christmas Day. But this year, Christmas Day uh, is a Sunday. And so I'm going to be here with y'all on that day. And so my location is going to change on Christmas Day. 
And so there are changes to the way in which we normally celebrate Christmas that come to us. And sometimes they happen in the ways I described, but other times they happen in ways that we don't script. And even as I mentioned what a normal way of Christmas looks like, it, it brought pain into your heart and into your mind because you're thinking about this is the first Christmas after the divorce and your house is going to be a little quieter. Somebody's not going to be there. Or this is the first Christmas after the death. Or maybe even it's the 20th Christmas after the death. But when you think of it, you think of mom or dad or husband, wife, a child. There's pain that is associated with that change in the way that Christmas unfolds. You might be looking at Christmas this year and you might have a spouse that is deployed and is serving our country or is somebody who's going to be a first responder driving an ambulance or a police officer on that day. And your, your way of celebrating Christmas is changed. And when I talk about that normal way in which Christmas unfolds for you, there's a little bit of pain that comes into your heart. Well, friends, I, I want you to know that uh, I know that emotion and I know that feeling. But I'm so thankful that as I read Matthew chapter 1 this last week, what I saw was that the original Christmas story, the the original events of Christmas transpired in a way that was unexpected, in a way that was different. There was a change in the norm at the very first Christmas when Jesus was born. And by looking at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, I think that we can be encouraged today as people who gather around the Christmas story, seeing another way in which it can unfold. So if you've got a Bible, take it out and open to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. The uh, Gospels in the New Testament, there's four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are four eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. There are four accounts that are given. And, and just like a story uh, that four of us might see, we might all remember different details of that story. And by hearing from all four of those stories, we get a more complete picture of what happened. So we have four gospels of the life of Jesus. Matthew remembers the genealogy of Christ, and then he goes right to Joseph's connection to it. Bruce read for us last week, Matthew 1.1, that says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he walks through the history of Jesus' lineage from there to verse 17. We pick it up now in verse 18, where the events of about nine months before Jesus' birth are told to us. Matthew writes and says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, in these seven verses today, we're going to see a couple of things that will help focus our worship this Christmas season. 
The first thing that we see is that there is another way. There is another way. We see this from verses 18 through 23. And we see it mentioned at the very beginning of verse 18. He says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. In other words, the way in which Jesus was born is significant. There's much that we can learn about the way in which Jesus was born. And this comment is necessary, not just from a theological sense, but also contextually in Matthew chapter 1. It's important for him to say this because when he walked through the lineage of Christ in Matthew 1 to 16, he gets to verse 16 and he says this. He says, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. See, in the rest of the lineage, it had been the direct offspring of each person that was mentioned. So-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. But when it comes to Jesus, he says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. In other words, the way in which Jesus was born was through Mary, not through Joseph. Though Joseph would adopt Jesus as his son, Jesus would not be in the biology of Joseph. The way in which Jesus was born was through Mary, but not through Joseph. And what this does is it reminds us of the way in which Jesus was born was not just a natural way. Now, make no mistake about it, there were components of Jesus coming that were natural. He had a nine-month gestation inside of Mary. He was born in a natural way, laid in a manger. He would grow up over 30 years in a natural way. He would grow physically over that time. He would naturally go to the cross and naturally die. There were components of Jesus' life that were natural. But what we see in Matthew 1 is that there was also a very definite supernatural component to the birth of Christ. In that Jesus would be born from Mary, but not from Joseph in a biological sense says in verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. There was a supernatural origin to Jesus' birth. The, the, the Virgin Mary had the Son of God placed inside of her womb. Now, this is a significant fact for at least two reasons that we see here in this passage. The first reason is this. It points to the fact that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He's the eternal Son of God. The, Jesus did not come into existence when he stepped into time in Mary's womb. He had existed eternally before that. In the Gospel of John, John makes this clear to us in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. John gives Jesus the nickname of the Word, and this is what he says. He says, in the beginning was the Word, in the beginning was Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. What John is telling us is in the time that we know of as the beginning, the time when the world was created, at that time, Jesus already was. He is the eternal Son of God. So that when Jesus stepped into time and stepped into Mary's womb through the work of the Holy Spirit, 
It was a comma in his story, not the start of the sentence. He had always existed, but he stepped into time when he was born there. Now, that, this is significant because you think about all other human life. All other human life begins at conception. My wife and I have a, uh, a wonderful son who's nearly 10 years old named Joshua. But, but here's the reality about Joshua. There was a time when Joshua wasn't. There was a time when he wasn't some disembodied spirit flying around. He did not exist except for as a twinkle in his mom and dad's eye. There was a time when he did not exist. But when we come together through a natural process, the life of Joshua Robinson begins. But what we see in the birth of Jesus is that Jesus existed eternally. There was not a moment in time where he began because he always has been. The birth of Jesus is an act of the Holy Spirit where he is implanted inside of Mary's womb, taking on a human form, but he did not assume someone else's identity. It is not the natural process of Joseph and Mary that Jesus then adopted or stepped into, but the Spirit began because Jesus always has been. The Spirit began the process. It was supernatural, not just natural. One of the things that we see is the identity of Christ as the eternal Son of God. We see that in the virgin birth. But beyond that, we also see this as the fulfillment of a prophecy. Verses 22 and 23 of Matthew 1, Matthew says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Here quoting Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, a prophecy given 700 plus years before Jesus was born. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and will bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. Friends, the virgin birth was the eternal God stepping into time, but it also was a fulfillment, a sign, a prophecy that had come true to let us know that Jesus was indeed who he said he was. And why did Jesus step into time? Why did he humble himself and take on a human body? Why did that comma lead to an embryo that would develop over nine months and would grow up over 30 years. Why did God choose to do it that way? He chose to do it that way because he wanted to demonstrate Emmanuel, God, with us. God so wants us to know him that he communicated to us in a way that we would understand through the life of the Son of God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. Friends, if you've ever wondered, does God want me to know him, rest assured he absolutely, unequivocally does. That's why he placed us inside this world that is so great and so grand that we would look around it and realize that there's a creator bigger than us. We know it when we take our Bible. If you've got a Bible, wave it at me. You can also wave your phone or your iPad. It's okay. Um, When you look at that scripture, it's a reminder that God wants you to know him. He got a message to you. He had it written down and preserved in history and handed off to you so that you could know God. And when we think about the Christmas story, of Emmanuel, God with us. We think about the God who stepped into time so that we could know him. See, we have a God who has provided another way. Not just the natural way, but a supernatural way. A way that allows us to know him. Now, what's interesting about this is as this new way, as this other way, begins to develop this Jesus way, this supernatural way, it was met with some questions by Joseph, wasn't it? He didn't quite understand all of what was going on there. 
It says in 18, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. See, if you've been around church at Christmas time, you're familiar with the idea of betrothal, but it's not a concept we're familiar with in our culture today. Betrothal was the, the equivalent of a long engagement, about a year long. But it was such a commitment between a man and a woman that the only way to separate a betrothal was with a divorce. They would basically legally be married, though they would not be living together, they would not be sleeping together. And it was during this process where Mary and Joseph were committed to one another that Mary turns up pregnant, and Joseph is quite certain that he is not the father. Now, when that begins to unfold, you can imagine what was going through Joseph's mind. Now, Joseph, it says here, is a just man. That meant he had a good reputation. And suddenly, the woman that he was going to spend the rest of his life with was having someone else's child. And so he began to think of what he was going to do. The natural way to handle that, Joseph would have floated in his mind back to the Old Testament law. And in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 17 through 21, where Joseph would have been well within his rights to have a public trial, to to call her out into the street and to publicly put her to shame before divorcing her. He, He could have even pressed for her to be stoned to death. Though that wasn't commonly practiced in the first century, it was something he could have pressed for. But it says here that Joseph knew that action needed to be taken, but he didn't want to go to that extreme. He wanted to also not just be just, but also compassionate, and so he decided to just dismiss her quietly, give her a certificate of divorce and allow her to go her way and him to go his, for them to build new lives apart and not together. This is a natural way. But God comes to him through the form of an angel in a dream to communicate to him and let him in on the fact that it wasn't just natural things, but supernatural things that God was up to. And it says that as he was considering these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And the angel tells Joseph, it's not just the natural thing, it's a supernatural thing that is being done here. And not just supernatural in the sense that there is going to be a baby born to a virgin, that is supernatural, but also supernatural in that salvation would come through that baby that was born. He was to call him Jesus, which means God saves God had a big plan for this child that was going to be born. He would be the Messiah, the promised one. And through a supernatural act, God was going to bring salvation to the world. Now, friends, that is extremely important for us to grasp. Because we live in a natural world, don't we? We live in a natural world, a world that is training us to be a slave to nature. When I got up here on the stage, I am, I am tied to the law of gravity. I'm not worried that I'm going to float off of this stage. Uh, nature has taught me that. Last night, I went to sleep knowing that I needed sleep. I'm a slave to nature. After church today, I'm going to have lunch knowing that my body needs food. I'm a slave to nature in those ways. We get conditioned that we live in a natural world. But here's the challenge for us. 
Because we live in a natural world and we get so used to that happening over and over again in so many areas of our life, we also begin to think that salvation or our connection to God is also established only through natural means. And the difficulty that we have is the world in which we live has a natural way to think about reconciling ourselves with God. And that natural way that we think about is through our good works. That if we just do enough good things, that God will accept us. That's a natural way of thinking. That if we just do more good than bad, that God will invite us into his presence forever. That is the natural way of thinking. And and we're tempted, because we live in a natural world on so many levels, we're tempted to think that this is the way that we connect to the God of the universe through natural means, through a natural process that makes sense to us. But we've just seen in Matthew 1 that when salvation comes from God, it comes not just in a natural way, but in a supernatural way. And what he describes there, that Jesus would be the Savior of the world, he he lets us know of a supernatural act that is an alternative to our natural perspective of salvation. That supernatural act says that Jesus lived a perfect life on the earth, but at the end of that life, he went to the cross to die. And as Jesus was on the cross, God supernaturally takes all of your sins and my sins that we have committed, and he takes them and he places them on Christ. And then he had Jesus die on the cross so that the full wrath of God might be poured out there and satisfied so that when God looks at us, he would not see us as sinful, but he would see us as forgiven because the wrath of God had been satisfied concerning our sin. That is not a natural process, friends. That is supernatural. And not only that, but that same God takes the righteousness of Christ and he he takes it from Christ and he takes it like a robe and he drapes it over us who are trusting in him. And not only are we forgiven, but we're seen as righteous in the sight of God. That is not a natural process. That is a supernatural process. But that is the way of salvation for us. It is not through the natural way, it is through the supernatural way, and it's hinted at right there in Matthew chapter 1. Friends, what is the way that you are trusting for your salvation? Are you trusting in a natural way or in a supernatural way? Let me just illustrate that a little bit for us. What do you, what do you think makes somebody a good person? Just quickly, just make a list in your head. What, what does it take to make somebody a good person? Are they nice? They're kind, they don't lie, they don't steal, they don't commit murder, whatever your list is, you've you got a list. They're compassionate, they're, they're generous. Now, let me, let me ask you, how are you doing living into that definition? Not just in what you do, but also in what you think. Is there any gap? Do you fall short in any way? Friends, even by our own standards, we fall short. If our hope is in natural means, even by our own standards, we realize we fall short of our own glory, much less the glory of God. For us to experience salvation requires a supernatural act where God does something great because here's what we're forgetting. We think that we can attain salvation based on our works. We're forgetting the character of who God is. God is a holy God, and he does not welcome to himself sinful people. They must be forgiven. They must be cleansed. They must be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. They must have experienced a supernatural work in order to be saved. 
What are you trusting in for your eternity? Are you trusting in a natural way? Are you trusting in a supernatural way? That's a great reminder for anyone here who has never placed their faith and trust in Christ. That's the hope of the gospel that could be yours today if you embrace it by faith. But it's also a great reminder for those of us who have trusted Christ years and years ago. We need to be reminded that our hope is found not in our performance but in Christ's work. Friends, I I was discouraged last night just getting ready for today, and I, I, I texted a couple of friends, and I said, I just want you to pray for me that the hope of Christ and the power of the Spirit is, is what is poured out for the people of Wildwood tomorrow. Um, why is that? It was just a reminder to me. It's not about my performance. It's about what God does. By faith, I stand up and I say, Lord, do your work. Friends, all of us have to have this perspective. There's another way. It's not just the natural way. It is the supernatural way. It's the Jesus way. He invites us to be a part of that. First thing we see is that there's another way. The second thing we see is that there's more at stake. We see this in verses 24 and 25. In those verses, it says this. It says, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, here's what is, what is powerful about this part of the story. Uh, Joseph was visited by an angel, but what did he do in response to that angelic message? He believed it, and he obeyed. He took actions consistent with what he believed. What an amazing thing that he did that. I mean, what would you have done if an angel had appeared to you and told you this? I don't know what I would have done. I'd love to say I would have done what Joseph did, but Joseph actually did it. But let me ask you another question. What happened after Joseph obeyed? Though we don't explicitly know, um, we can guess. Just think about that. Small town, betrothed person, pregnancy. A little bit of water cooler talk maybe? A little bit of looking down their noses, looking at Joseph and saying, yeah, Holy Spirit, I got it. He had to endure that and deal with that, not only in the days leading up to, but in the days following him growing up. That was part of the legacy, part of the story, but Joseph endured. And here's the deal. Joseph knew there was more at stake than just his reputation. What was at stake was the glory of God. It was the salvation of man. Joseph's obedience, though it led to immediate trial, is vindicated in history. And we have a reminder of that. I mean, how many little statues of people that you know their name of do you have in your house from the first century? Just statues of men from the first century that you have in your house. Um, I don't know. You maybe have some shepherds. We don't know their names. Magi, we don't know their names. You know, Jesus, of course. But we also have a statue of Joseph. When you set that nativity out and you see Joseph, let that be a reminder to you, friends, that it's always worth it to obey God. Maligned in his day, vindicated in history. How many of you have a Joe in your family or a Joseph? Anybody? We have one in our family too, a couple of Joes. Um, when you think about 
why they're named that way. They're named that way after Joseph in the scripture. It's, it's vindicated. Now, I, I tell you not to obey God so that someday they'll make a statue of you or name children after you, okay? Think bigger than that. We trust God because in eternity it is worth it. There are times when we obey Christ that our motives will be misjudged. We walk in and we obey Christ and we, we, we step out to share the love of Jesus with a neighbor and we point them to salvation through Christ and they look at us and they, they call us a Bible thumper or they say that we don't care or they say that we're closed-minded or Cro-Magdon or whatever you want to say. They, that, that's, that's a look you get back. You can be misunderstood. But is it worth it? Friends, there's more at stake. You step into a situation and you, you come alongside a brother or sister who's hurting and you challenge them in their sin and they come back with, you hypocrite, you're misunderstood. There's more at stake than just your reputation. Friends, in the story of Matthew 1, we see the another way of salvation, but we also see that there's more at stake than just what we see. It's always worth it to trust Christ for our salvation and for our hope for every day. So this Christmas season, let's remember that. And let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather today and worship. Thank you that you have given us the privilege of looking into your word and being encouraged by the fact that there is more going on than what we see. There's more going on than just what is natural, but that you are offering us a supernatural hope. And Father, I pray for anyone here who has never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, that this morning they would trust in Jesus. Father, right where they sit, that from the heart they would embrace what he has done, the death on the cross for their sins. His righteousness, our hope for eternity. And Father, I pray that you would um, also just encourage all of us to, to lean into your provision for our lives each and every day. We thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.